Good morning again. How are you? So nice to be greeted. Every Sunday I look forward to my second service greeting. And then every Sunday I look forward to it again because, no, it's, you did a good job. We're in Revelation. We're in chapter 19. If you'd like to open your Bibles there and navigate on your device. Revelation 19, we're looking at verses 11 through 21. The topic, Jesus is coming again, not lowly and riding on a donkey, but kingly and riding on a magnificent white war horse. The title of our message, Back in the Saddle Again. Let's pray together. Jesus, you promised that you would change us moment by moment from glory to glory, that you would be cleansing us and washing us with the word of God that you would be conforming us into your image. We're predestined after we're saved, Lord, to become like you. I pray that today we would hear your spirit speaking through the word of God right into our ears, right into our hearts, showing us your great love, that we'd be motivated by that love, encouraged by that love, strengthened by that love, refreshed by it that we would realize there is no other love that's like your love, that it's everlasting, that it's pure, that it's uh, amazing and awesome. We also want to understand the text itself, Lord, why it was written, who it was written to, what it's all about, but we don't want to lose you in it because the word of God, it is about you. Lord, you are the volume of the book, and so speak volumes to us today about your love. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. They are the where were you when moments in history. Those who are alive during President John F. Kennedy's assassination can often recall where they were when the tragic news was announced. Other memorable where were you when moments are the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, that was July 6, 1968. The September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. The verdict in the O.J. Simpson trial, June 12, 1994. The Apollo 11 moon landing, July 20, 1969, if you believe that really happened. (laughs) As, As Christians, we have a unique view of history. We have prophecy, which is history written by God in advance. Instead of asking where were you when, we can ask where will you be? When? There are two dramatic prophetic events whose certainty demands we ask ourselves and others we love that question. The first is the resurrection and rapture of the church. Jesus is coming in the air to take the believers of the church age home to the place that he has been preparing for them in heaven. He will raise the dead in Christ, then living believers will be transformed in a moment of time faster than the twinkling of an eye. He's promised to do it before the seven-year tribulation on the earth, and he says it's imminent. It could happen at any time. Where will you be when that happens? Will you be in heaven with the Lord, or will you be left behind? It's a serious question. The second prophetic event is the one we're going to read about in our text. It's the one all of history is moving towards. It is the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth at the end of the tribulation. Where will you be when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom on the earth? What crowd will you be in? 
I'm going to organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, will you accompany the king when he comes? Or number two, will you be in the company of the kings when they are killed? Let's look in verses 11 through 16 at accompanying the king. The Green Bay Packers have the most famous waiting list in sports with more than 100,000 names waiting for season tickets. The team's website says the wait is over 30 years. It's a common custom in Green Bay and other Wisconsin cities to put a baby's name on the list as soon as the birth certificate is obtained. Your guaranteed access to the greatest future event in all of human history is free. All you need to do is get saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Once you're saved, you'll be resurrected or raptured when Jesus comes for the church. And once you're saved, you'll accompany the Lord from heaven to earth in his second coming. And so we pick it up in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. There's a scene in the Lord of the Rings, the two towers where Shadowfax appears for the first time. He's the magnificent Lord of all horses. I don't know why, but it cracks me up. I, I think they spend entirely too much screen time uh, with shadow facts, but uh, something like that is going to happen as the Lord returns. Only, of course, the horse won't be the center of attention. The Lord will. But can you imagine the sky cracking open and Jesus returning on a white steed and millions upon millions of uh, the church and angels following behind him? Wow. Now we're told that Jesus is called faithful and true. These seem to be shout outs as the Lord appears. I mean, he is faithful and true. We could describe him that way, but those witnessing his return seem to call this out. Faithful captures the fact that his coming has been the unwavering plan of God from eternity past. Promising in the Garden of Eden to save lost humanity, God the Father has worked providentially throughout history, and Jesus never, ever wavered in his commitment to go to the cross. One of the great things about the revelation of Jesus Christ is that everything comes together. And we see here in the second coming that the plan of God from eternity past, then into the garden, then throughout all of human history is going to come together exactly as the Lord has promised. Faithful. True can mean a lot of things, but with regard to Jesus' second coming, it establishes that the plan of God was the only possible way for men to be saved and for the universe to be restored. Jesus is not a way to forgiveness, he is the way, the only true way for sin to be atoned for and for you to be justified, sanctified, and ultimately glorified. It is right for him to judge the nations and make war with them. By the end of the tribulation, these men and women have determined their fate by their individual personal decisions to reject God's free offer of salvation. Besides that, we've seen their wickedness is extreme. This dramatic display of judgment comes only at the end of a long time of grace, patience, and mercy. There is no rush to judgment with God. And that's why we call this series the grace of wrath. Yes, his wrath must be poured out against sin, but not in a context of, of bitterness or anger so much as in a context of grace always reaching out to lost men and women. 
In verse 12, it says, his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. John had undoubtedly looked into Jesus' eyes many times in the three and a half years he had followed the Lord on the earth. Not once did he describe them as a flame of fire. This is Jesus unveiled. He is still in a body. He's in a glorified human body. I remember the first time I realized as a Christian that the Lord was resurrected in a glorified human body uh, the way you and I will be forever. He'll be in that body. But it's infused with divine power and John can see it in his eyes. We're going to each look into those eyes at what is called in the Bible the reward seat of Jesus, our works on the earth, and especially the motives behind them are going to be judged. As I understand it, uh, after the rapture of the church, uh, every believer will stand before the Lord one by one and uh, have a review of our life. The works, it says, will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Could this fire simply be Jesus' gaze, his eyes as a flame of fire? I think so. To be crowned with many crowns speaks of victory after victory after victory. Think for a moment of all that Jesus has triumphed over. Sin and death, the grave and the devil. Those are some powerful forces, some potent enemies that you and I are helpless against. But Jesus in his life and his death and in his resurrection has defeated every one of them so that we need no longer fear them. Apparently upon him there is writing, a name it says. We can't help but be curious about the name even though no one knows it except himself. Maybe it's an endearing name. Commentator Albert Barnes said, this cannot here mean that no one could read the name, but the idea is that no one but himself could fully understand its import. It involved a depth of meaning, a degree of sacredness, and a relation to the Father which he alone could apprehend in its true import. Jesus has so, so many names in the Bible. Do you ever think about how many names Jesus has or descriptors or titles? Commentators would generally say he has over 200. One site, ChristianAnswers.net, has an alphabetical list of 900 names complete with scripture references for Jesus Christ. I mean, you just can't capture the Lord in one name or two names or 200 names or 1,000 names. He's that amazing. It's a great devotional to discover some of those names. I would challenge you to do that. Each of them describes some aspect of his nature or character or mission or his methods. It seems there must be one name known only to the Trinity, an intimate name that only the Father and the Spirit may rightfully use. Some of you in your families or with your husband or wife or your children, you have endearing names, and sometimes you use them you know, publicly for one another. You might have some super private names, but uh, usually you don't like it when strangers uh, pick up on your endearing names for each other because they haven't earned the right. Uh, they, 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 they aren't part of that circle. Uh, and so this is probably what's happening here. It's just something that's shared among the Trinity. It says he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. This is not the blood he shed on the cross at Calvary. If you were to look at this forensically, you'd see that this is the blood spatter of his enemies. We'll see that in just a moment. 
The first direct reference to this writer is that he is called the Word of God, and that identifies him for us as Jesus, because John, in his gospel, opens with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he talks about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, a clear reference to Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can be called the Word of God. Jesus is God come in human flesh to declare and to reveal the character and the nature of God to us. What if a person has no knowledge of Jesus? Well, God can be known to an extent from creation, and Romans 1.20 is one of the verses that tells us this. We read there, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And so creation declares the glory of God and his divine nature, and so the, God can be known to a certain extent on account of his creation. The Bible also declares that God has put, and I quote, eternity in our hearts. That's from Ecclesiastes 3.11. Uh, it's one of my favorite little phrases from the Bible. I don't know why, it just grips me every time. God has put eternity in our hearts. C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And I think the Bible indicates that every human being who sees God in creation also has internally, eternity in their hearts, this understanding that there is more, that life isn't, uh, doesn't end at death. They have a spiritual yearning. Seems to me to be the testimony of Scripture that God so loved the world that he gave Jesus to be lifted up on the cross in order to draw all men to himself. Those are Jesus' words from John 12, 32. He said, if I be lifted up, speaking of the cross, I will draw all men to myself. Now, that doesn't mean all men will be universally saved. They will not be. Jesus is the Savior of all men, we read in another place, especially those who believe. And so there's the potential at the cross for every human being to be saved, but you are saved when uh, you receive God's grace through faith. The cross has a power, a spiritual power, to free the will of men and women so that they may be drawn to Jesus Christ. What about those who have never heard of Jesus, though? Can they be saved? Well, we subscribe to a position on salvation that is sometimes called by theologians the wider hope, wider hope. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. We affirm that God, in his grace, grants every individual a genuine opportunity to be saved without excluding anyone. Now, within our wider hope camp, there are several suggestions as to how this could be accomplished for those who have never heard the gospel. My current position is one that has a long history in the church. It is that God will somehow, by his providence, get the message of salvation to any person who responds to creation and the eternity that is stirring their heart who is seeking him. The Holy Spirit is, after all, in the world, and his ministry is to reveal Jesus to every heart. Now, people want to argue, and they say, well, how exactly does God do that in every case? And my answer is... I don't know. But I do know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that Jesus said that the 
cross was powerful enough for every man to be drawn to him. And so I leave that part with God. I don't, the person that's never heard the gospel the way we have, that doesn't know the name of Jesus, I'll leave that with the Lord and let the theologians argue about their theories. Normally the person you're talking to is using it as a smokescreen to say something about uh, God. And the reality is they are hearing about Jesus. I don't know about the pygmy in Africa, but I do know about you. I'm giving you the gospel and you're without excuse. So what are you going to do? That's what it comes down to. Verse 14, the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. You've heard the old joke, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. Well, at the second coming of Jesus, we are coming back with him and we'll be clothed in fine linen wedding garments. We saw that in the beginning of the chapter. We're coming to our marriage supper, but a fight is going to break out. It's, called, it's a little thing called the Battle of Armageddon. Not to worry, we're not going to do any actual fighting. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Paul the Apostle writes that at his return, Jesus Christ will destroy the Antichrist, he says, with the breath of his mouth. And so these uh, are metaphors, the sword coming out of his mouth, the breath of his mouth, for the spiritual power wielded by Jesus. His words strike the nations. You know, the Bible says in Colossians and elsewhere that Jesus created all things, that he is the creator. Someone who can speak a universe into existence is going to have no problem saying a few words that destroy all of his enemies on that fateful day. And so there's not, if, you, if your idea is that Jesus is going to come back as a ninja with several swords and, you know, just about go down, but at the end cut off the head of the dead, that's not the way it's going to be at all. It's, it's, there's not going to be a whole lot of fighting. It's going to be a whole lot of feasting, as we'll see, by carrion birds as they come and eat the flesh of Jesus' enemies. And in the Greek of Revelation, this verb to rule is a word I can't pronounce, but I'll try anyway. It's poimenin, which signifies to shepherd. The Lord rules the nations as a shepherd king with a rod who both protects his own people and destroys his enemies. Now, the rod of the shepherd, it's an actually a, an amazing tool. When the shepherd is afield with his flock in the high country, he obviously carries a minimum of equipment. In the Middle East, the shepherd carries a rod and a staff. As far as I can tell from reading, the rod has three uses. First, it's used for protection. The shepherd spends hours practicing with the club, learning how to throw it with amazing speed and accuracy. It's a weapon of defense for both himself and his sheep. So it's, it's more than just a club. I mean, this, man, this guy can let it go and nail stuff. Now, unlike Captain America's shield, it doesn't come back to him. He has to retrieve it, but uh, they're pretty accurate. Second, it's used to discipline the sheep. If the shepherd saw a sheep wandering away from its own or approaching poisonous weeds or water or getting too close to danger of one sort or another, he could throw the club at the sheep and it would go whistling through the air until it hits it and startles it. I remember when I was a teenager, we had an, a, a dog. It was part Doberman, part uh, shepherd. It was just crazy. Um, and I took it to uh, obedience training, which was a waste of time, and probably because I needed the training more than him. But one of the techniques that this particular trainer used was he had us throw things at the animal if, when it was off leash. 
and, uh, and not obeying. And they said, don't let them see you. But then wang, and I got hit more than the dog because of all the other training people. You know, <laughs> you know? And so nobody's accurate with this. You're trying to hit a dog from 10 feet. It's ridiculous. But uh, these shepherds, deadly accurate. And third, the rod is used to examine and count sheep. In the terminology of the Old Testament, this is referred to as passing under the rod. Ezekiel 20, 37, God says, I will cause you, talking to Israel, to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. This meant not only coming under the owner's control and authority, but also to be subject to his most careful, intimate, firsthand examination. A sheep that passed under the rod had been counted, but it also was looked at as the shepherd would have take the rod and, and go through the... Uh, wool to see if there were any parasites or uh, you know injuries and things like that, and so Jesus Christ will be the shepherd king of the world in those days, and he, it's not a weak image at all. It's a and it's incredibly strong, intimate issue uh, image of the rule of Jesus Christ. Now the wine press. That's a terrifying image of judgment. It seems to be borrowed from this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 63. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? It's because I have trodden the winepress and from the people no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. I have stained all my robes. Like grapes being crushed in a vat, so will the armies of men be defeated by the Lord. In the meantime, the scripture speaks of our feet this way. You're familiar with this from Romans 10. How shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Uh, I don't know when it became uh, part of the news media's favorite uh, statements, but uh, somewhere along the line, they started talking all the time about having boots on the ground. You know, they're always, there's always, and the military's probably talked about it for years, but the news media people, oh, how many boots on the ground are they going to have? Well, we have a lot of feet on the ground as the Christian army. Millions upon millions of feet all over the globe uh, sent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the good news, penetrating regions for uh, God's good and his glory. Verse 16, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Here are just three ways of the many suggestions to understand this imagery. Jewish scholars, number one, insist that the word translated thigh would in Hebrew be the word banner. I'm not sure if that's true or not. It seems a stretch, but maybe they're right. Thus they see Jesus with a long flowing banner upon which is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Others say, secondly, that it could be a reference to his thigh uh, as a sword that would be strapped to the soldier's thigh. Now, I think this is unlikely since Jesus doesn't really need a, a physical weapon since we've just understood that he defeats his enemies by the word of his mouth, uh, by the word of God. And then some say that Jesus has a tattoo. And uh, I say, yeah. Uh, now, Jesus doesn't need a name tag. Everybody's going to know it's him. I mean, when the Lord comes back, it's not one of, you know, it's like, is that a bird? Is that a plane? No, I mean, everybody's going to know it's Jesus. And so what's happening here is his role is being designated because, you know, Jesus came a first time, didn't he? And he came very differently. And, and, and people were confused what are you doing in Nazareth? 
And why aren't you doing anything for the first 30 years? And what are you doing now? How come you're not establishing a kingdom? And so when he comes back, they're going to know it's him. And there's going to be this writing somewhere, a banner on his thigh, however, that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you know what I mean? He's coming to plant the flag. He's coming to plant the flag. And that flag that history is moving towards... I am the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, always have been, always will be, but from this point forward, there's no uh, opposition that I will not immediately destroy and put down. I am taking back what was lost from this point forward, and he plants that flag. Now, the believers of the church age, the church, Christians, are among those who accompany Jesus at this time. Where will you be when that happens? You can accompany Jesus if you get saved before you die or before the rapture. So if you're not a Christian today and the Lord comes uh, in the rapture or, God forbid, you die before you receive Christ, you will not be coming back in this glorious scene. There's another destiny for you that you don't want. Most of us know that we're going to accompany the Lord. We have confidence, should we die, we will be absent from our bodies and present with the Lord. Now, I wrote that down during the study this week, and I thought, I have to, I have to really think about that. Because, I, you know, I haven't, over the years, over the 30 or 35 years I've been in the ministry, uh, I've done a lot of funerals. And I almost always, at some point, quote from Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that is such a tremendous statement. If you just meditate on that for a while, it's just mind-boggling. And so here's a funeral, and the individual is a Christian. And of course, you're grieving, and you're sad, and you're, you feel a sense of loss. And, and you know this side of heaven, it's all, it's all suffering and sorrow. And maybe they died young. Maybe they had an extended illness. Maybe it was an accident. Who knows? But it, it's just that thing. And then you realize, somebody says, or in your heart, the Holy Spirit whispers to you, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you and I as Christians... Think of it, you have an absolute confidence. You know that you know that that is true. You don't get up and say, well, I'm hoping that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Who could know? You know, because Jesus rose from the dead. You have the word of God. You have the spirit of God. Do you understand what a comfort that is? That's the only comfort that is possible at that moment. And, And you've seen it. People get up at the funerals of unbelievers and they give them their eulogy and say, well, I, you know, I, I'm sure Joe is in a better place. Huh. Uh, he's, you know, doing what he loved. You know, God saw that uh, uh, he needed somebody to barbecue, and so he picked Joe, and, you know, Joe's up there flipping burgers for God. It's, it's, it's a lame attempt to say, you might as well get up and say, I have no idea where Joe is. Can anybody tell me where Joe is? And you and I can. And so think of it. Don't just pass over that lightly. To be absent from the body is present with you. If you die before the rapture, you'll accompany the Lord in this great second coming. We believe the rapture is imminent. Remember, the rapture is presented by Jesus to his closest disciples the night of his crucifixion as a bridegroom returning for his bride. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die and be in the grave. 
He's going to rise from the dead. They're sorrowing. And he says, listen, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave to uh, build you a house. And I'm going to come back for you. And I'm going to take you where I am. And the Jews in the crowd, which was all Jews, they would say, wow, that sounds like a wedding. That sounds just like a Jewish wedding. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's because it is. Because I am your bridegroom. And in that system, with the bridegroom gone and the bride on the earth, there is a constant anticipation and a constant thrill, really, of seeing one another and of being together. When you were engaged, I hope you were thrilled to be with each other. When the phone rang, of course, back then there were no cell phones, when, you know, back in the 1800s when I was engaged, but... Today, I mean, if the phone rang and the name comes up, admit it, sometimes names come up and you're like, <sighs> if the name came up and it was your fiance, you're excited. You're thrilled. If the mail came and there was a note from that person or they showed up secretly or whatever, there was a thrill. It, it, it was romantic. And this is what Jesus portrays our life ought to be. Now, we kind of fall out of love with Jesus. He says, look, you guys, are, you're constantly leaving your first love. You need to get back to it. But we, we can have this kind of a sense. So often we portray Christianity as, well, here's what you need to do for God. You need to do these five things or ten things or one thing or whatever. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to come back for you. You don't know when. Be ready, like a bride is ready for her bridegroom, looking good, feeling good, ready to go. It's a whole different way of uh, looking at the Christian life. We really ought to be happy campers as we're journeying in these temporary tents on our way home because we expect to be raptured, but if not, hey, we're going to die and go to be with the Lord. We can't lose. We got it covered. Verse 17 through 21, will you be in the company of the kings when they're killed? Repetition is often instructive when studying a passage of Scripture. When you see a word repeated, it's repeated for a reason. The word flesh is repeated six times in these next verses. It has a very literal meaning. It refers to the skin and muscles of the Lord's enemies at His second coming. Their flesh will be eaten by scavenger birds. It will be a feast for them as they pick away at the carcasses of the fallen. We also talk about non-believers figuratively as bringing forth the works of the flesh. We mean that they produce awful things from their unredeemed human nature. In one famous passage, the works of the flesh are described like this. This is from Galatians chapter 5. It says, the works of the flesh are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, meaning that we could go on and on, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is coming to establish the literal kingdom of God. These will not inherit it because they are of the flesh, having never received the Lord as their Savior. And so verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. An angel blocks out the sun on account of his own brilliance. He's brighter than the sun. He calls out to birds that have gathered in the valley of Megiddo. All of the world's remaining scavenger birds come and fill the sky. 
They literally feast on the flesh of the fallen. We also see the failure of the flesh from a spiritual standpoint. This scene is presented with what one commentator called repellent realism. It is purposely revolting and nauseating in order to emphasize how revolting and nauseating fallen man is in his natural state. Uh, so this is really going to happen, but it also shows us that you know, this, this is what it means to be in the flesh. It's, it's an ugly, nauseating, repellent thing. There must be something that would repel you or nauseate you if you came across it. Well, that is what our reaction ought to be to the things listed in Galatians and to any other works of the flesh. We become desensitized sometimes to sin because we, uh, it's all around us, uh, especially in our uh, digital culture now. We see so many things that you wouldn't have seen even 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. Uh, and it, we are all becoming really desensitized. And, and things that ought to sicken us don't sicken us like they used to anymore. Sin is a repulsive, repellent thing. Um, certainly we love sinners. Uh, we're not saying you know, you know, that anything about that. But sin, it, it's something that we can't wink at or overlook or shrug our shoulders. Uh, it's, it's a very repelling thing. This chapter opened with an invitation to a marriage supper. This is not the marriage supper. This is another supper. Non-believers are the menu, not guests. So verse 18, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. This lets us know that God is no respecter of persons. In the end, only one thing will matter. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? If not, it makes no difference if you are great or small, free or slave. Verse 19, and I saw the beast kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. In any good action movie, there's a final showdown between the hero and the villain. Somehow they find each other on the field of battle and they go at each other. In the movies, for dramatic effect, usually the villain almost defeats the hero, but in the end, with some amazing maneuver, the hero wins out. Second coming of Jesus Christ, not gonna be like that. The villains are the beast who we call the Antichrist and those with him, they are easily overcome. There's, there's no real fighting. Then the beast was captured, verse 20, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. The beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist and the false prophet will be the first two inhabitants of what is called the lake burning with fire or the lake of fire. They are judged and thrown there prior to the great white throne judgment of the Lord. Now we'll see that the devil is going to be thrown into the abyss for a thousand years before he is eternally confined in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the final eternal destination for all those who ultimately reject Jesus Christ. We normally refer to it as hell, but that is inaccurate. And so let's take uh, a minute and look at a few terms that describe some of these destinations, see if we can't unpack them a little bit. Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, is a Hebrew word that describes the non-permanent place or the temporary address of disembodied souls of the dead. It is the same as the Greek word Hades. And so Sheol, Hades, same place. Prior to Jesus Christ's resurrection, both the souls of the evil and the righteous went 
to Sheol after death. Now, this word is translated grave 31 times, hell 31 times, and pit three times in the King James Version of the Bible. And so you see why there is some confusion. Sheol has two compartments separated by an impassable gulf. Jesus taught this in the Gospel of Luke. One side was and is the holding cell of non-believers after they die. And so if a non-believer dies, even today, their soul ends up in Sheol, it ends up in Hades. The other side was called Abraham's bosom by Jesus. It was for the comfort of the righteous after they died while they were awaiting their entrance into heaven. I said was with regard to believers because the resurrection of Jesus changed all that. When Jesus Christ died, he descended into Sheol. When he was resurrected, he led the righteous out of there into heaven. Since then, the souls and spirits of all saved people go directly to heaven when they die. To be absent from the body now is to be present with the Lord if you're a Christian. The lost still go to Sheol, as I said, and they join the lost of the Old Testament in torment on one side of the gulf when they die awaiting their resurrection. Then there is Gehenna. It's translated hell all 12 times in the King James Version, it appears. It is used to refer to the permanent place of torment for the soul and the body. It's called a place of fire that never quenches. In most of the references, it's clear from the context that those who enter Gehenna do so in some type of resurrection body that is indestructible. For this to happen, it must occur after the resurrection of the damned at the great white throne judgment. And so Gehenna is the lake of fire described in Revelation. It is presently uninhabited, but the beast and the false prophet will be cast into it at the end of the tribulation. A thousand years later, Satan will be cast into it, and then all the lost people of all previous time periods will be cast into it. To summarize, Sheol or Hades, the temporary place of torment for the souls and spirits of non-believers who die, prior to Christ's resurrection, saints were kept and comforted in the now vacant part known as Abraham's bosom. There are also a few places like the abyss, which are detention centers or prisons for demons. And then there's Gehenna, the lake of fire, the permanent place of torment for the souls of the wicked dead and their resurrected bodies. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels, the angels that followed him in rebellion against God. And that is why we can honestly say God never sends any man to the lake of fire. People go there of their own free will having rejected Jesus Christ. There's no place else to go. It's either heaven or the lake of fire. And if you don't want to be with the Lord, if you don't want to be in heaven, uh, then this is the other destination. Verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and the birds were filled with their flesh. The rest are those on this battlefield. And so, Obviously, you do not want to be in the company of these kings when the king of kings returns. Uh, it's another way of saying you don't want to be a non-believer at all. Now, if this all seems fantastic to you, it shouldn't. There are something like eight times as many references in the Bible to Jesus' second coming than there are to his first coming. I was in college before I realized that there was going to be a second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, I was... <laughs> reading a poem by William Butler Yeats called The Second Coming. 
and I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, and I'd grown up, my religious tradition had been Roman Catholicism, and uh, no one had ever told me in my family or in church or in catechism, no one had ever said a word uh, about Jesus coming again a second time. Uh, and I found it fantastic. My professor explained that to me. And I said, That's, that can't be true. Somebody would have told me. And so a lot of times people think that this second coming is some kind of a made-up idea or it's not really going to happen. Eight times more references to the second coming of Jesus than his first coming. You can be a lot more certain he's coming again. Here's a scene from Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended into heaven and his disciples stood gawking upward. Two men appeared to them and here's what they said. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. When Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives in the clouds, he's coming back to that same spot in that same body. Only the Bible says in his second coming, the mountain will cleave in half because of the power of his presence on the earth. And so uh, he's coming. If you knew the future, wouldn't you do something with that knowledge? Between April 1992 and April 2012, Apple stock increased by over 4,000%. Don't you wish you had bought a few shares of Apple stock? I know you didn't because you're still in Hanford. <laughs> or how about that property on the coast that you could have bought years ago? I hear this conversation all the time in Hanford. Oh, we were just over at the coast. Yeah, we could have had a place for 10 bucks. Now it's worth $20 million. Uh, I could kick myself. Man, if you knew the future, that it was sad. If somebody came back and said, hey, I only got a few minutes, but <laughs> you know, it's 1992. Apple stock is 93 cents a share. You should buy some of that stuff. Like as much as you can, because uh, in the year 2012, you're going to be a millionaire. Well, you would do something about it if you knew that it was true. Now, what I'm talking about here, the future we're talking about, the stakes are much higher than that. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, these things are going to happen. Jesus is coming to rapture the church. But before that happens, you could die. And then after that, Jesus is coming a second time. Where will you be when those things take place? You can decide right now. And you can know what all of us as Christians know. But to be absent from your body is to be present with the Lord and to be waiting moment by moment for him to return for you and then to be coming back with him on that glorious day. Let's pray.